Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Guys, our podcast game is on fire. The game is high right now. I mean, we have you been listening? We have had some of the most incredible guests, some really interesting finds. Like, I don't think you probably hear from Joan C. Williams, our guest last time, or maybe you've never heard of Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Dr. B, who was two episodes ago. What we try to do here is find those with an extremely compelling message, a lot of experience, knowledge, and training to back it up, and that might be going underneath the radar. We're not trying to just interview the Kardashian or the, you know, most recent bestseller. This is Smart People Podcast for a reason. Let's get weird. Now, our guest this week is just continuing to step up that game. He is pretty darn famous, so you might have heard of him, and it's more likely you've read his books or seen him on TV. Our guest this week is Brandon Webb, former U.S. Navy SEAL sniper, a New York Times bestselling author, experimental aircraft pilot, and very successful entrepreneur. He's the founder of Hurricane Group, a U.S.-based digital entertainment, news, and e-commerce company. Brandon is an interesting guy. You know, I I was really thankful that he kind of shared his story growing up. One of the things that really stuck with me is about how he was a crazy kid. And he thinks that if it was today's world, when he was growing up, they would have just put him on, he says, Ritalin, come on, Brandon, get with it now. The new drug is Adderall, obviously, but still he'd be put on Adderall sedated to some extent, et cetera. But instead, you know what he did? He got into sports and those sports turned him into this athletic driven person, then became a Navy SEAL, left the SEALs. He trained snipers, including 
Chris Kyle, which you all probably know from American Sniper. And as I mentioned, Brandon's a prolific author. The book we're really focusing on in this episode is Mastering Fear, a Navy SEAL's Guide. So we touch on what does fear mean to a Navy SEAL? How do you get past it? How did he conquer all of his fears? How does he live with fear? He's also written books like Total Focus, The Killing School, Among Heroes, and perhaps his most famous book, the New York Times number one bestseller, The Red Circle, My Life in the Navy SEAL Sniper Corps and How I Trained America's Deadliest Marksman, which by the way has almost 800 reviews on Amazon, almost five stars. He also has hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. So I can't wait to bring this real raw episode to you as we talk about what it was like growing up in a foreign country and leaving his family at age 16, what it was like joining the Navy SEALs, becoming a sniper, going to war, and then what's it like coming back when you're at war? How do you master fear? What do the SEALs know that the rest of us can use? And much more. Look, we still feel like Smart People Podcast is this hidden gem. What can you do to help us get it out there? I, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I hear the host say that and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, John and I are just guys sitting in a homemade studio talking to people across the world trying to drop some knowledge. So if you could help us spread that message in any way, tweet it, Facebook it, tell a friend, send out a mass email, whatever you can do, we really appreciate it. We are at Smart People Podcast. Dot com. And if you love what we're doing, make sure to sign up at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. Here it is, our interview with Brandon Webb, as we talk about snipers, seals, and fear. Enjoy. You were a seal. You were a badass. You were a sniper. You trained snipers. Give us a little sense about your background. I know you have a really interesting childhood. If you wouldn't mind kind of cluing us in on that and bringing us up to, to modern day kind of as, as quickly as you can. Yeah. You know, I had a what I thought was normal childhood, and then I would tell people about it later, and they'd be like, no, that's, that's not so normal. <laughs> uh, my parents were hippies. My dad met my mom hitchhiking in Malibu. My dad had moved from Canada to California you know, was burning draft cards with his buddies in California, met my mom hitchhiking back from the beach with her girlfriend. They got married. He moved her from North Hollywood to to interior uh, British Columbia, Canada, and was building homes and eventually built a construction company, had me and my sister. Uh, then he ended up losing his business. And I think it was tied to the big savings and loan crisis in the late 70s mm. in Canada. And, and, and he took it really tough. Like, this was a guy that, you know, he was a self-made guy and had property, boats, all this stuff. And then it just went away and, and he went bankrupt. And so my parents were like, you know, we have this dream to, to go sailing around the world. Let's buy a sailboat. So they bought a boat in Vancouver. We sailed that from Vancouver down uh, briefly in Seattle, then from Seattle to uh, California, Ventura, California. And so we lived on the boat as a family for f about five years. And my mom learned early on, I was a terrible kid from like zero to, to five, like drinking gasoline, 
<laughs> honeysuckle what? after bath lotion. My, I was in, in the hospital with my stomach pumped every other week. What? Uh, among among every, every. I'm sorry. Did you just say <laughs> drinking gasoline? Yeah. I mean, my mom was like, what the hell is in this kid? Like, I was just a terror until she got me into sports. Oh. Um, but I was just always getting in trouble, fighting. I, you know, taped firecrackers to the, to the toilet plumbing and elementary school and blew up with my friends and sat in class. I remember seeing like the water creeping under the door into the classroom. <laughs> so, so wait, I gotta, I gotta pause you here because this is a topic we cover uh, sometimes on the show. I mean, we've, I don't know, six guests or so. It's just raising kids. Right. And, and I've got a, a three-year-old and a four-month-old and like, what was it? Can you go back and remember why was I such a jerk? Like, can, I, what is it? You know what it was? I honestly, my mom, went to doc like she called social services on herself that's how bad it was ah I, mean, I was putting my sister in the dryer like in probably around five years old some doctor said look your kid just has a lot of energy just put him into sports and, yeah. and when she did that i started ski racing i started wrestling and it just channeled that energy you know and i think too often today you know these kids are diagnose oh he has adhd yep give him medication yep. when in reality like there's just kids that have super high energy and need a channel for it somehow and i'm a parent i say that as a parent of three amazing kids uh, yeah i think that that that's what it is i just had all this energy and was if left to my own means would just find something to do yeah know? no there's so <laughs> many stories about that 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 i read and i get into it my my son who's three He's he's good, but he has so much energy like that. And his biggest thing, he talks all the time. And like yeah. the thing is, if you're not conscious of it or aware of this being a good thing and you're tired and I can imagine maybe, you know, the, the situation your mom was in. I mean, it's just really tough to to give the amount of energy and effort needed to hone that into a, a useful skill. But I mean, yeah. here's the other thing, right? You take somebody such as yourself, troublemaker. Put them in sports, but I imagine you didn't have the the home life that you're giving your children. And look, you still turned out. I mean, arguably, I, I guess I don't know you that well, but yeah. look, you know, a contributing member of society, probably with I, some some decent values. <laughs> so, look, moral of the story: it's really hard to totally screw somebody up. Yeah, and look, I have two boys and a girl, 12, 14, 16. But the thing that I've noticed as a parent, and I'm, you know, I've been divorced now for God, almost ten years, I think. Mm -hmm. I have a good relationship, thankfully, with my ex, mm. who's remarried. The one thing I would say is advice to parents that really is the foundation of a, of a child's development is making sure that they know that they're just loved yeah. by both parents. Let me ask you this. What's harder, raising three kids or making it through uh, SEAL training? Um, I mean, I'm not out of the woods yet, so <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> And I'm think, asking in all seriousness. Like, yeah, I, no, I think I would say raising kids because the stakes are much higher. Really? Uh, oh, well, I guess then training, uh, I guess. Yeah. So now, I mean, back to my yeah, yeah. childhood story. I was in Ventura, California going, I was in middle school. And my mom said, hey, there's a scuba diving boat that's looking for a, a kind of work for tips deckhand just to help people off with their gear and and they're looking for a kid to like work weekends in, in the summer. So I went down there, you know, within that, that first summer working, I was, I think I turned 13 that summer. I'd learned how to scuba dive. You know, it was a boat that 
a private chef, a hot tub, and we took sport divers out to the Channel Islands off the coast of California. It was an amazing experience as a 13-year-old kid. But really, you know, to tie it into the, the Mastering Fear book, one of my first stories of being really terrified was getting woken up uh, by the captain, Captain Mike. Uh, we were at San Miguel Island on the backside at Tyler Bite, which was a huge sea lion seal habitat. And if anyone watches Shark Week, you know what eats and feeds on sea lions, <laughs> great white sharks. And so, you know, it, it's a great dive spot, but, you know, no, a known, you know, spot where people would see great white sharks. So I'm, I get woken up at two in the morning and Captain Mike says, hey, get your suit on. You've got to get the anchor unstuck. Uh, the, weather had, the weather had started to get a little rough, and we had to move to calmer water to, for the pass, so the passengers could sleep. Um, and so they didn't want to waste you know, an hour trying to you know, maneuver and, and get the anchor. It was just easier to send a diver down. And, and I had done this in the daytime before. Huh. But I was like, you know, I was kind of shaking off REM sleep going, you want me to fucking do what? <laughs> 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 I was like, there's sharks down there. It's dark. The visibility, I knew that because the waves had picked up. Now the visibility is worse because the bottom's getting churned up by the waves. I was just terrified. And, and I said, okay, well, I don't want to let these guys down. So, you know, I, I said, okay, well, let me just go down and just take it one step at a time, you know, my wetsuit on and then I put my tanks on Yeah. <laughs> and the next thing you know, I go to the bow and I jump off with my flashlight and I swim as fast as I can. And it's about 50 feet down and I'm seeing these sea lions zip by me with the bioluminescence. Oh my God. And I was like, Oh God, <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. But I was like, at least they're here. I know yes. there's no sharks around. So that, actually that's um, a good way of thinking about it. Or even if there yeah. is a shark, you know, it's either you or the sea lions. I mean, you're not, you're not the sole one out there, you know? Yeah. But you know, the, the long story short is I, I got the ink, the chain unwrapped around this big ledge and came up and I felt really a great sense of like satisfaction. Cause I had, it wasn't as bad as I made up in my head mm. and I, I did it. And, and I think I was kind of being tested too. And it just felt good. Like, okay, I'm, I kind of passed the test, but, um, so I grew up on that boat until 15 working every summer weekends and in, in school and became a very competent deckhand rescue diver. Uh, and then my dad announced, um, that we're doing this big sailing trip. And I have a lot of respect for my parents for, you know, taking us halfway around the world with, at a time where you didn't have GPS, you right. know, you had a sec, a sextant and a, you had a Loran C, which didn't work in the middle of the ocean. So off we go on this, we're going to sail to New Zealand. That's the plan. And, um, I made it, I turned 16 in Acapulco. I went from Acapulco over to the Marquesas. It was a 30 day passage. Um, we made it to, uh, I think, Hiva Oa was the first island, and then we went to Nuka Hiva, then to the French Tuamotos, and, and as we were kind of making our way into the South Pacific, the next island chain was the Society Islands, which is Tahiti, Bora Bora, Marea, and my dad and I just had a, we had a series of smaller arguments. We had a big blow up in Pape Te Tahiti, and he decided, hey, you don't want to be here. I think you should leave and go back to California. And, and I said, 
damn right. And I, <laughs> so my mom is crying. Um, you know, I packed a bag and found a boat that was leaving for Hawaii and needed, needed crew and sailed to Hawaii on this catamaran. Probably cried myself to sleep the first four or five nights. So I came back. The owner let me live on the boat, finish my senior year of high school. And he wanted me to be a captain. Um, I ended up, I didn't want to do that. And I wanted, I had this kind of desire to prove that I could make it on my own and do something really challenging. And that's when I ended up learning about the Navy SEALs. I, I initially wanted to be a fighter pilot, mm. uh, but I, I didn't have the grades for it, to be honest. I had this broken school record. Um, and so I found the Navy and the SEAL program, and I said, this is for me. So I, I signed up uh, when I was um, – I think I signed up when I was 17, with my parents' permission. I went in at 18. I was, I think, three and a half years as a search and rescue swimmer in helicopters. And mm. my second application to SEAL training – got approved. I went to SEAL training in 97 with class 215. I started with 220 and finished with 23. Wow. Um, it, because I came from the regular Navy off of a deployment to the, the Persian Gulf, I was on an aircraft carrier with a helicopter squadron. I really didn't, I wasn't in great shape and I got punished for it. But I just kind of gritted it out and got through that first phase and eventually got myself into shape and, and was, was okay for the rest of the training. I, I kind of blended in after the first six weeks. Wow. And then, uh, I, you get to choose what team you go to, at least you get to choose your top three. And I, I chose seal team three at the time. Seal team three was responsible for the middle East, like Southwest Asia. Um, that that's changed today. Like all the teams kind of, pitch in wherever wherever's needed right seal seal team three i like because they were the only two teams in the late 90s that were really doing work were um, seal team three because they were doing the non-compliant shipboardings you know enforcing the un sanctions against saddam hussein and and as he as he was trying to smuggle oil out of the iraq we would board those ships at night and take them over and then steer them down to to Dubai. Gotcha. Um, so we were, we were doing some cool shit. We had desert camouflage was our uniform of the day, which was unlike anybody else. And we had, we had a desert patrol vehicle platoon, which are these fast cars, you know, in the desert. So it was seal team three and seal team four on the East coast that was doing stuff in South America. So I, I chose three cause I wanted to work and I wanted to be, you know, a, a seal. And I'd, Deployed to the Middle East a bunch, you know, two, twice, two six-month deployments mm -hmm. as a search and, search and rescue swimmer. So I had a little bit an idea of the culture. So I, I went to Team 3, did a great platoon. It was just a, a really solid group of guys and, and mentors. And at the end of that deployment to the Middle East, we, we got called on an emergency call to go down and set security on the USS Cole that got bombed in Aden, Yemen. Uh, it was two guys in a, in a crappy boat that almost sank a billion-dollar warship wow. in, the, in the port of um, Yemen, or Aden, Yemen. So we took our special boat team down there. We set a sniper watch on the bridge and, and had a rules of engagement to shoot anybody that comes within 500 meters. Um, it was a real 
interesting time for me because I was just processing all this going, wow, like two guys with a little bit of a homemade bomb almost sank this ship and killed 17 people. Like the, the nature of warfare has changed. And it was really this shift, you know, especially we saw it after 9-11. You know, this isn't a conventional war. We're fighting with, with tanks and bombers and warships. This is much different. And so the, it was about that time where the DOD after 9-11 really fundamentally made a shift in the Department of Defense model to everything had to be special operations relevant. You know, what once was the kind of bastard child of the military now is at the forefront and center. And if you didn't have your fingers in that community, then you were you're going to lose budget. You're going to become irrelevant. So it really changed the the dynamic of the way the U.S. military was structured. Oh, sure. Uh, but, well, and all of a sudden you found yourself probably getting uh, called upon a lot more often. Well, what happened was I came back. At the time, my wife was, I think, eight months pregnant, and I was coming up for reenlistment, and I wanted to get my bonus tax-free. And it was like, a, I think, a $20,000 bonus. But, you know, being in California, federal state taxes, I could go reenlist in the Middle East and get, get it all tax-free. And, and at that time, that was a lot of money for me. Sure. And so I go and ask the ops officer, Kevin, hey, I wanna, can you send me on a temporary assignment to, to Bahrain so I can you know, get my bonus tax-free. He said, well, actually, we just disbanded most of this Echo platoon, and I want you to go in that platoon and help rebuild it. And I just was like, oh, not that platoon. Because <laughs> everybody knew that platoon. And they, I think they failed their operational readiness test at the end of their, like, 12-month workup. Um, but I was just like, I was in the all-star platoon and then they wanted me to go to this one. And right. So I, I, I ended up doing it. And then, you know, it was a rewarding experience. That platoon was next to rotate out the door. And literally two weeks later, the towers came down. And I just knew. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be here for the birth of my right, son, right. Hunter. So I went to, Af we went to Kuwait for a while, then to Oman, and then into Kandahar, Afghanistan, and spent... I want to say probably it was close to five months in Afghanistan. Spent Christmas in Afghanistan. My son was born November 30th, 2001. Um, so it was, I felt really good about being over there doing what we're doing because it was, you know, when you look at it from a strategic point of view, the, the strategy was very clear. Everybody knew what we're there to do. It didn't matter if, if you were the, a general or, you know, the lowest person in the rank person in the military, you knew why we're in Afghanistan, kill bad guys and wipe out the training camps for terrorists. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that, that's what I was doing over there. Um, well, and know, at this point, were you a trained sniper? Yeah, I had my first platoon, me and my best friend, Glenn, uh, who was one of the guys that was killed in Benghazi on, on the rescue team. Um, Glenn was an amazing guy, but him and I got picked by our chief and said, hey, you two guys are the best shots in the platoon. We gotta, we're short two snipers. We're sending you to sniper school. And that really didn't happen to new guys. Like, mm -hmm. Usually it was seasoned guys. Mm -hmm. So we were like very like honored, but at the same time scared, scared shitless because 
wow, what if we don't make it? We knew that it was the toughest school that we have. It's probably one of the only schools that you could fail as a SEAL and not, get, not lose your pin uh. and get kicked out of the teams because they knew it was just that tough. Well, it's it's interesting that the you know the thing that scared you the most was oh man this is going to be tough and I might fail like what about the fact wow this is going to be tough I'm going to look through a scope see somebody's head and explode it potentially you know that that never really crossed my mind because you're okay. you know you know why you're in this like you know as being a seal like what your job is I mean we spent hundreds of thousands of rounds live fire shooting at targets, you know, doing, you know, hooded, we do this thing called a hooded box where I talk about it in my first book, The Red Circle, where this, you know, you get in this box all kitted up and this hood comes down over you. The hood goes up and you're just like punched in the face by some guy. And then, you know, three guys are running at you and you have to like shoot them, strike them with your weapon, whatever you got to do to solve that equation. And you do it over and over and over again to hone your kind of instinctive reaction. And you're just drenched with sweat. Everything is live video and you're critiqued. Okay. And if you... Okay. Wait a so... second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> so you're in this big thing. And the reason being what? Like, are they shooting at you? Like, is it bulletproof? I don't understand. We use... No. So imagine you're in like a gymnasium. Okay. And you're standing in the middle of the gymnasium. Okay. And you're blindfolded. Oh, and then I they... see. Yeah, and then they take the blindfold off, and mm. you got to solve this thing that's coming at you. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention... The breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-did-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night, risk-free, sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash smart and using smart at checkout. That's casper.com slash smart and offer code smart for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. And you you don't know what it is. And that could be, you could be like just fighting. You're just surviving, basically. Yeah, it could be a guy holding a gun to a little girl's head. It could be like my first time. I remember I got punched right in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like you never know, but you have to, you've been trained up to that point, but you're there to kind of instinctively react and, and shoot the right people. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you know that as a SEAL, like that's your job. Okay, um, let me ask you this then, because th- this is just rapid fire. But I've always yeah. wondered this, because, you know, my my impression of what it is to be a SEAL and a sniper and all this is made up in movies and shows. Say you're, uh, I don't know, 30 feet from a, a, a terrorist who has, like you said, the little girl hostage. Um, what is the likelihood? And you've got, we'll go with both guys. You've got a handgun and you've got, like, your assault rifle. Uh, can a SEAL seriously just shoot the bad guy? Like I would say that that range, yeah. Okay. Like all seals are are that good. Wow. Um, at that that range, where where the 
the skill and the knowledge of a sniper comes in is really when you get out to about it's a multiple multiple of things like it's out past 800 meters right or you're in a complex like urban environment where there's angles involved because high angles really impact gravity and the the rise and fall of the bullet sure uh, flight path yeah so that's what you have to know like okay i'm I'm at a 45 degree angle to this guy that's that's 100 meters away. I need to hold three minutes of angle lower than I normally would. Right. Um, so I hit center mass. Um, and and so, that, that makes sense. But I feel like when you're, and again, no idea. But when you're a sniper, you're kind of posted up. You're in your little world. You've got your scope. You're taking your time. In an environment where you're like 30, 40 feet away with a, with a handgun, you don't have a brace. I don't know. That almost seems harder. Now, I know I'm probably an idiot, but... You know, I've I've gone shooting before, and the kickback alone on a pistol, like for the person who doesn't know, I mean, you will miss a target at thirty feet sometimes. Yeah, I mean, a pistol—that's you're really—it's almost outside of the maximum effective okay. range. Okay, uh, like twenty-five yards is about it for you. Have to be a damn good right pistol shot to hit something that okay at twenty-five yards. Yeah. Um, but you train, we train so much live fire that the guys get really, really good, especially the guys that go to, you know, SEAL Team 6. Yeah. Um, that's all they do is the hostage rescue stuff. They get, wow. those guys get so, so good. That's crazy. Um, but, you know, my experience as a sniper, I did mostly reconnaissance missions in Afghanistan where we would go out in, a, you know, two four-man teams spot enemy positions, sometimes track them down, mm -hmm. um, plot their positions, and then midnight, call up the F-16 and, and drop bombs and, and kill them all within two minutes. Right. Um, so, so is it, it was less, yeah, go ahead. less me. You know, my, my sniper experience wasn't like uh, Chris Kyle, mm -hmm. where it was very intimate up close in the scope. Mm -hmm. However, the first time we had... A contact in Afghanistan. We dropped. We had to drop bombs within danger close on ourselves. On, you know, I th no one knows what the numbers are. Everyone's arguing about it still. But it was sure. more than ten people. Um, in sixty seconds to impact, we're hearing a baby cry, and we're like, "Holy shit! Wow. Like, this is this is kind of crazy." But that's that's when you realize war is hell. And, yeah. And again, I think. I haven't had any problems compartmentalizing my combat experience because uh -huh. I think honestly a big part of it is it felt justified why we were there and what we were doing where I wouldn't say that, you know, it passed 2003, we really had any business being in Afghanistan, to be honest with you. I think it got, it turned into my generation's Vietnam and yeah. I, I think that's where a lot of guys, men and women, who are transitioning now are struggling because they're like, why the fuck are we here? Why the fuck are we here? And, and why did these 10 people that I, I served with four or five years die? What did they die for? Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and that's at today, you know, I run a men's lifestyle company. It's content and products, but we have a news site and we're very critical on foreign policy and these, you know, especially, you know, U.S. foreign policy, which is really there's no what I have seen is there's no clear foreign policy strategy. It's all it's a schizophrenic at best. Oh, yeah. And, well, yeah. 
and it's just terrible because I'm looking at these, we're losing some of the best and brightest military minds, period. I mean, these people are just some of the smartest, most talented people I've, I've known. And a lot of them aren't here anymore. And it's like, okay, what, what for? Right. Like what's, is Afghanistan today better than it was when we, when we went there? Right. I, I don't, I don't know. Well, and in the know, Middle East for sure is a complete disaster. Like we shouldn't, regardless of whether we went in, should have went into Iraq, we should have, we did go into Iraq and I think we really owed it to the people of Iraq to stay there and stabilize. Instead, we pulled out, left the power back in place. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Iran could just walk in there and then a group like ISIS could, could stand up. And now you have civil war tipping off in Syria. Like, and, and it's a complete mess. And everybody, I hear arguments for and against Syria, but Syria is a strategic base for Russia. You know, mm. it would be like, that's why it's important to Vladimir Putin. Mm. And, and so are we really going to arm rebels and fight this proxy war against Russia, China, and, and Iran? Right. Like and, and so it's, anyway, I'm going on a little bit of a well, no, tangent. I mean, but, but you hit on a lot of things there. You know, specifically, I was 18 when uh, the towers came down. And I think almost every young man in this country probably had some inclination of like, all right, I got to go kill people. I mean, yeah. now that that sounds terrible. I'm a I'm a pacifist for the most part, but there's something that just wells up. So I could see the justification. And then, you know, you mentioned going into Iraq and, and all that. I, I think to this day it's still and it will forever be considered one of the worst moves decisions in our country's history. Um, yeah. And you kind of live through it. That's what I think so much of your writing, so much of your your story from the Red Circle to your new book, Mastering Fear, is you, you were in the middle of this really unique time for our country. You know, when we were at our lowest and kind of trying to rise out of it and at the tip of the spear, really. You know, and I was one of the first kind of wave of guys to I, I was. I was unique in that I was had a pretty good career. I came back from that deployment, got recruited to a sniper cell, which was advanced sniper training and as an instructor, then got asked to come down and, and help with the modernization of the SEAL sniper program and eventually uh, was running it as an E6, which is was an E8 position. And so I made chief petty officer, E7, first time up. I was 20... I think 28 years old running as course manager, one of the top programs in, in the world that, training snipers. That's crazy. Um, well, on let the me West ask coast. You, and, let me ask you this about, cause you train snipers. Um, what's the, then I, real oh, quick, then I, then I left, I got burned out and people were like, you're at the top of your career. What are you doing? But that that's, so I was unique in that way. I just left. And I, a lot of guys, you know, I, I had literally teammates say, how dare you leave? Sure, um, you're leaving us hanging. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah, I've got, I've got a five year old son that's like begging me to be at his little league game on Saturday, and I yeah. want to be there. Like, I don't. I gave 13 years of my life to the Navy. Mm -hmm. Had a great career. Never f got too much trouble. <laughs> I walked <laughs> a pretty straight line. And I don't know. I don't know the military anything anymore. Like, I had a great great career and i'm doing now it's time to focus on me and my family and 
You know, a lot of guys didn't get that. Right. They felt like I was being a coward. And I'm just like, you. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? I mean, it's hard to say after that, right? It's like yeah. uh, 13 years, you know. Well, and I, I say that because I, I kind of decided at that point to just move on. And my, that was how I dealt with my transition. I, I didn't go to SEAL reunions. I didn't, I'm not a part of the SEAL Facebook. And I, you know, you and I were talking before the call about some of the, some of the haters I've dealt with. And I think people resented me for that. But I, I'm like, that's me dealing with the transition my own way. Like I have my family and my friends now. Like I'm, I have to leave that behind. Sure. You know, it, it, to a degree, right? Like I'm not going to say I wasn't a SEAL and, and wasn't a search and rescue swimmer. Like I'm proud of that. Right. But I'm doing another career now. Yeah. But and contributing, anyway. well, and contributing in a, in another way, which we'll talk about here in a minute. I did want yeah. to ask you, what's the hardest thing uh, a SEAL has to do? And what is the most necessary skill for a SEAL? Or, or let's talk about sniper, actually. So hardest thing for a sniper to do and then the, the most necessary, because I think up the top, people think shooting, but it's sounding like it's other things, whether it be mental or a different physical skill. Yeah, it's not as crazy as it sounds, not shooting, although that's an important part. It's having the mental capacity to remain focused under distraction and, and a, a tremendous amount of pressure. I've had, you know, SEAL training is arguably one of the hardest training selection programs in the world to probably the SAS and, and like Delta and um, so on. But I've had guys say I would rather go through SEAL training twice than go through sniper school. It was that stressful on me. How did um, they stress you that hard? So um, it's just you put, as an example, you know, we'll put guys, uh, the first thing in the morning, you got to take a shot for a test. It's called a cold bore shot. So out to the rain, maybe after, you know, even sometimes before morning, um, morning PT, uh, we would take them out to the range. Hey, or we'd tell the class, be on the 500-yard line, ready to shoot at 6, 6 a.m. Out there we go. We set up. They're all laid down, set up. And we would say, you have one minute to get to 900 yards, identify your lane, and take a shot within one minute. Wow. So they had to pack all their shit, run hundreds of yards, <laughs> you know, and, and sit down and then take a shot under. Now they're like surprised, heartbeat racing um, because of this. And then they got to get on the scope, make whatever calculation they need to make for, for wind. Sometimes it's, you know, different light conditions affect the, the way that you see, um, you know, the target through the scope. So they've got to take all this into account and make a shot for grade. And if they miss, it's a zero. Um, and you can't have too many of those or you go away. So it, it's just super competitive, super stressful. Another situation we put them in where we would sit them down and say, okay, sometime between now and an hour, your target will appear. And I literally seen guys like go off the scope, wipe, wipe sweat from their brow. Yeah go back on and see the target disappear that was that was there <laughs> so, wow you know there's that's just like a, a small example sure the the thing that i took the most pride in was we had all these different consultants come in from the top coaches in the world I mean, one of them was a gold medalist who's a friend of mine today lanny basham who who developed one of the first 
mental management program. Uh, when Lanny, Lanny went to his first Olympics, uh, he was an Army marksmanship unit world champion, went to the Olympics uh, to shoot rifle, was supposed to win gold, and he let these Russian guys get in his head. He ended up shooting silver, was like de- like destroyed. Like, how did this happen? You only get, you know, sometimes only one shot at Olympics. Comes back to the U.S. and goes to all these sports psychologists, like, fix me. How do you, what happened to me? Can you make me, you know, right in the head so I can go back in four years and win gold? And all of them at the time, the, the theory was, okay, we're just going to make you okay with being number two. <laughs> and Lanny was like, no, that's not the point. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he was like, you want to know what's the worst thing about winning silver? He's like, as soon as people find out you're in the Olympics, they ask you what you did, you tell them, then it's how you did. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I tell them silver. And they go, the next question always, who won gold? Who won gold? Yeah, <laughs> who won gold? Yeah. Wow. And so he spent a year surveying all the gold medalists and their coaches and putting together a program because he found these similar traits that they all embodied. And so he developed this mental management program. It's big on uh, self-affirmation, whether you call it that or, or like a personal mantra, uh, visualization, visualizing perfection, hmm. like per- perfect performance, visualizing shit going wrong and having contingencies. Example of that is Michael Phelps, big visualizer. He's goggles flooded in Beijing. He ended up, he had already rehearsed the scenario visually in his head over and over. He just started counting his strokes and with flooded goggles, won gold in the finals and broke a world record. So um, it's big on positive psychology, you know, self-talk, which I talk about in Mastering Fear. Mm -hmm. When those little, we all deal with fear. We all deal with doubt, like self-doubt. The little voices always creep in. So how do you have a system in place to to combat that and replace negative self-talk with positive self-talk. Yeah. And for, for, as a parent, I'm so thankful I was, had an opportunity to meet this guy, Lanny and, and implement that program. At least I was, when I was the sniper course manager, I made it a big part of our training curriculum. And I saw the numbers go from 30% failure to almost, zero percent overnight just stay there because we started teaching these guys how to self-coach and we started teaching better we 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 noticed through lanny's program he says there's a time to be negative and and that's like a boot camp scenario where you want to just be tough on people and see if they have what it takes to to make it on their own Mm -hmm. but he says you guys are getting trained seals so there's no reason to yell at them for mistakes because all you're doing is programming them with bad habits. They, as a beginner, you're learning. You don't know what you're doing. And so if you're just hearing all the bad things, the incorrect things, you're just programming them for failure. So just give them the corrective thing to do. And so that's like positive coaching versus negative coaching. Right, right. It's, it's as little as telling a kid to not strike out as he's walking up to a little league or – saying, hey, focus on the ball, hit it out of the park. Like that kid is, you know, hearing very two very different things and visualizing two very different things um, when a coach says that to him. So I want to ask you, actually, because I had this on my mind and you just used the baseball analogy. I wanted to know people such as yourself or in any of these this type of field, whether it be 
uh, sports or, or obviously seals, all these things. I mean, you, you have to work through all types of pain and, and I've never really understood that. Right. And the reason being like, for example, say I, I don't know, sprain my ankle, like I'm going to put it on ice and put it on a pillow for a week and just be like, if I stand on it, I'm going to make it worse. Whereas I'm sure, you know, there's all the things you have to do. You just got to work through it and hope you don't die. Right. And, and when I was, I was a really, really good baseball player. And I think one of the only things that kept me from D1 minors, whatever it would have been, I got drilled when I was younger and it stayed with me. And so my hitting just declined. And, and I always think if I had the knowledge, the training, the mentor to address that one issue that ruined every part of my swing, who knows what would have happened? What do you, what would you tell, you know, it could be an athlete or anybody who's dealt with that kind of trauma that's serious to them to get over it and actually, you know, become better uh, through it. So, I mean, it's, it's such a great scenario you describe because it applies to everything in life. Right. I see it with my friends, men, men and women who were in a terrible relationship and they hold on to it and they just jaded and negative and they can't. They're putting that out in the world and they're not attracting good people because they just can't let the, they can't fucking let it go. Right. So, and I talk about this in Mastering Fear. It's not a shameless plug. I actually really, really deal with this in Mastering Fear. It's creating, changing the way we talk to ourselves about those types of things. And, And if it's a really deep embedded thing, like literally putting post-it notes on the bathroom mirror, like, it, you know, on your phone, you know, having a little reminder pop up, like I am this way. Um, and it's, it's a system to kind of get that out of your head and transition. It, it, it's like I run into people, I'm not very good with money. I'm not good at math. I'm only an average golfer. When you say this stuff to yourself, you're really saying it to yourself, whether you announce it publicly or not. In, in a conversation, you automatically set a ceiling for performance. And unless you start changing the way you think about yourself, you're never going to get past it because you've just created a self-limiting performance barrier. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not an easy thing to do, but you can overcome it. And it's not like you can do it overnight. It's slow, sometimes slow steps. Like the the inspiration behind Mastering Fear was I met um, a guy four years ago who's now my best friend, Kamal Ravikant. Kamal is a best-selling author, a partner in Angel List in San Francisco, which is brother, uh, brother founded, one of the top like tech VCs, and writes one of the biggest uh, paid subscription list for cryptocurrency. I was going to say, he's the guy that taught me crypto. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's the guy, right? So yep. Kamal is a best friend. I became friends with him and I learned he was terrified of the water. And he kept bringing up a conversation about, yeah, I really want to go take a class here or there. And I said, look, I was like, dude, I'm your, we're close friends. Like, you know, my background, I can't have you as my closest friend, (laughs) not know how to fucking swim. Like, this is crazy. So I said, just give me one week. And he's like, oh, you know, I've had professional swimmers try and teach me. I was like, dude, just give me a week. So I went back and I, I thought about, okay, how do I, how do I develop a program for Kamal? And so 
over a week period of time and for one hour every morning, um, I started him the first day in the pool, just baby steps, like to build confidence. So I, I said, okay, come get in the pool. And this is the guy that like got in the ladder and like nervously pushed off and grabbed the wall right away. Wow. Like, just gripped the wall in fear. And I said, okay, look, we're going to do breathing drills. Like, I know you don't like to put your face in the water, but that's what we're doing now. Hold on to the wall or the lane line, put your head in the water, exhale, come up, take a breath and do it a hundred times. And then he was fine. Okay. He's like, okay, I got this down. Then it was like the next thing and the next thing. And by Friday, instead of grabbing the wall, I taught him to float on his back as his kind of safety, happy place. But Friday he did a cannonball, sank to the bottom of the pool, 10 feet, and held his breath and then pushed up and, and he could swim, you know, the length of the pool down and back. No problem. Wow. Not, not going to win any races, but he was like on the subway back on Friday. He's like, dude, you changed my life. Like you have to write a book about this. Huh. Um, and so does, did the fear go away hundred percent? No, but it's, it's slowly building confidence and he knows he could swim. He, he sent me a message when he was in Bali uh, earlier this year and it was like dude i'm sitting at a villa in bali doing cannibals every morning when i would have been terrified to do this yeah. like a year ago like thank you so much so the to bring it back to your point about this the swing it would have been like intense visualization you would have visualized yourself getting hit over and over and it, until it wasn't even a big deal you're like fucking bring it like yeah. send it yeah you know? <laughs> no it, <laughs> you as know you were I mean? saying it i mean that's what it would have been because you said something earlier about dump, you know, jumping in the water and, and freeing that anchor. And you were like, then I got out and realized it wasn't as bad. I mean, I think that is the thing, at least for me, to fight off any self-doubt is to just continually remind myself almost everything I've done in this life was worse in my head. I mean, yes. one of my favorite quotes, and I, I always butcher it, but my dad told me, I think it was Mark Twain, I've experienced a lot of bad things in my life and some of them actually happened. It's exactly. like, it's like, yeah. So it's true. A, yeah. So, and that's so what, true. that's why I wanted to have you on. I mean, the book mastering fear and Navy SEALs guide, you just got a little taste in this episode of, of what's in it, but it's tactical mixed with the stories of being a seal, such a unique background. I know we have to let you go. And I was hoping in the last two minutes, you could answer one question I really wanted to, to talk to you about, sure. which was letting go of the coconut. Because I thought that was such a powerful message I read somewhere you wrote, letting go of the coconut. What's it mean? How do we use it as a message to carry forward with us? So the story is uh, that I tell in the book is about how they, you know, we do all sorts of crazy training, desert training, jungle training. Well, uh, a friend of mine went to jungle training in the Philippines and he said, and he told me the story about how they trap monkeys and eat them for survival. Um, and let me tell you this, if people are listening and going, I would never eat a monkey. It's like, I can get you hungry enough to where you eat, you'll look at, start looking at your best friend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so, I, I have no doubt that there is yeah. a stage in which I would happily eat a monkey. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've met, I talk about in the book, Nando Parado, who was the, the guy that hiked out of the Andes um, to, to get the Uruguayan uh, rugby team rescued. They, they, they made the movie Alive about it, um, yeah. where they, they ate the dead the dead yeah. to survive. Yeah. But, um, so anyway, the monkeys, so they dig a hole, they put a coconut in the hole and then they put these sticks, you know, like uh, to cover the hole. So the, basically the monkey can reach in, but when he grabs a coconut, he can't pull his hand out. 
it, all he has to do is let go of the coconut and he can go free, but he won't let go of the coconut. He grips it and he'll let, he'll hold the coconut all along. And then the, you know, the Filipino jungle expert comes by, bonks it in the head and that's dinner for tonight. Wow. And, you know, the story is, you know, uh, so many people have fears that they will not let go of like that coconut. You want to let it, and, and they have the keys to the cage. <laughs> mm -hmm. They, they could just unlock the door themselves. And so it's to notice in life, like what are our coconuts that we hold on to that are holding us back mm. and, and really be honest with ourselves and go, you know what, this has been a problem, whether it's, you know, a relationship with a loved one, like my father and I were really worked on our relationship um, because I knew that I was holding on to, to a lot of bitterness based on his really like, he was upset. I wrote my first book and got to tell my version of our, oh. our story, you know? And so, but I realized, you know what, I'm not going to let that, I got to let it go on my side, even if he won't. And it's, and it's ended up working out because I wanted my dad to have a relationship with, with my kids. Right. And I, and, and I wanted to have a relationship with him. And so, you know, that was a coconut I was holding on to. So I think, you know, when I talk, tell that story in Mastering Fear, it's, it's really a, take a moment to think about those types of things that are potentially holding us back. And, and sometimes we got to let go. So that's, that's it. Yeah, I loved it. Well, again, Brandon, thanks so much. The book is Mastering Fear, A Navy SEAL's Guide. It's just one of many of the great books that you've written. So I just want to say thanks again. Is there anywhere else you wanted to, uh, you know, guide our, our listeners for where you are, where they can find you and things like that? Yeah, I would say my website is brandontylerweb.com. Um, I'm really active on Instagram, and that is just at Brandon T. Webb. Uh, I, I don't think I have an unanswered DM on Instagram. I, I just I, I used to not answer people, but I just found it's like a fun thing to kind of engage yeah uh, isn't it it is fun yeah, to engage with yeah. people who you know read or listen or hear your art or whatever it is you put out there but to know like yeah. oh you this you value this cool yeah and then um you know if if you're a guy out there who's kind of a guy's guy we check out hurricane.media because that's we really built this this kind of men's lifestyle brand where it, you know, guys can be guys. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so it's and, pretty cool. And even for us, you know, us folks that are pencil pushers or whatever, we can at least get on there and imagine that we uh, did, <laughs> did as many manly things as you did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, we have Brent. one of the, the best, uh, like, men's boxes, like subscription boxes out there. It's like a Batman or James Bond in a box for guys. So we we send them all sorts of cool stuff every month it's called the crate club. I am but, going on there right yeah. now to check that out. <laughs> all right, Brandon. Well, I know I held you a little long and you got something else coming up. So again, thanks so much for being on. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Brandon Webb. Brandon's newest book, Mastering Fear, a Navy SEALs guide can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you purchase the book through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, 
head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're looking for past episodes of Smart People Podcast or want to sign up for the newsletter, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned, and we will see you all next episode.